From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. He leads the largest medical examiner's office in the state. And after a year in the pandemic, Dr. Leon Kelly says there's a clear need to help young people handle the stress they carry. What it's about is providing them the tools from the day they're born to deal with those things. That's where we're failing, to be honest with you. Imagine you're 11 years old like Dominic, and it's usually easier for you to hold your emotions in. Imagine you tell your story. Imagine many people distancing from you when you came back to school. Imagine people seeing you and backing away because they think you still have COVID. Imagine people finally hanging out with you again. Children's Hospital Colorado says child mental health is in a state of emergency. Could encouraging kids to put emotions into words help? Evergreen members make ongoing monthly donations in support of CPR. If you're an Evergreen member and have recently received a new credit or debit card, please update your information on file. Updating your credit or debit card will ensure that your investment in the programs you love is current. Easier still, switch to giving directly from a bank account. Your ongoing commitment to supporting in-depth news and music on CPR makes an impact. Call member services to update your card information at 800-722-4449. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Dr. Leon Kelly runs the biggest medical examiner's office in the state. He performs autopsies for sudden, unexpected, and non-natural deaths. He's the El Paso County coroner, and he also does autopsies for 21 other counties in southern Colorado, too. Every year he puts out a report. It's showing, quoting Kelly here, the vital signs of the community. In 2020, he saw some serious signs of distress. In the middle of the pandemic, there were increased teen suicides in southern Colorado. Many more people died accidentally from drugs, and domestic violence killed more people than any other kind of homicide. Dr. Kelly sees a common thread, the need for more focus on mental health. We're never going to remove the stresses of life. We're never going to take young people and turn them to adults and never have them encounter something difficult. You know, hello, COVID, right? What it's about is providing them the tools from the day they're born to deal with those things. That's where we're failing, to be honest with you. Dr. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thank you. How can an annual report on deaths reveal, as you put it, the community's vital signs? Yeah, the, 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 the purpose of, of this office, of any coroner or medical examiner's office, is really to identify where things went wrong. Um, it also identifies places where we're succeeding. You know, it, it, it's, it's kind of the ultimate, um, the ultimate evaluation of your community. What, what and how are people dying? And so from this data um, is sort of that, that foundational piece of, of public health, of public safety, of what, what's, the, what's the worst case scenario? And then what, do we, what can we learn from that? And then where do we go? What do we do to ultimately prevent these same types of things from happening? It gives us that critical data to move forward and, and focus our, you know, our limited but, but very valuable resources on what do we need to do to, to save lives in the future. And a lot of your job, it is looking at data, helping us understand it and 
draw out the meaning there. And Southern Colorado's population is growing, so it is not surprising that the number of deaths in every category went up last year. Tell us more about understanding that data and when a trend in the way people are dying is concerning. Yeah, there's there's two ways to measure performance in, in an area like this. When you compare yourself, your community to how other communities are doing. And, and and that time will come. We're still early in evaluating and looking back on 2020. The other way is to is to look at yourself, right? And see how you did compared to previous years. And yeah, population is always going to grow, at least in most communities, certainly in Colorado, but um, it's, it grows at a relatively steady rate. And so you know kind of where, where you should be. And yeah, if, if everything across the board ticks up by a few deaths, you know, that's to be expected. But when you have a thing, say, such as drug deaths, where last year, 2019, um, we had 130 uh, drug deaths, uh, accidental drug deaths. And we went from 130 in 2019 to 186 in 2020. That's not a normal increase, right? That's a dramatic, statistically significant alteration in where we are and where, where our trajectory is. And that's what that's what this report's about. It's about prompting then that discussion of what in the world's going on. And in this report, we, we see what's going on in many cases. But then ultimately, what are we going to do about it? You say you see what's going on. What is going on? So when we look at our drug deaths, that, that significant increase from one year to the next, you know, one of the biggest driving factors is fentanyl. And we've seen fentanyl's effects predominantly on the eastern half of the United States. It's a very, very powerful opioid, 80 times more more lethal and, and toxic than heroin, 100 times more lethal than, than morphine, which is kind of the gold standard for, for opioids. Once you see fentanyl enter your drug supply, we went from, in this community in El Paso County, from 21 fentanyl-related deaths in 2019 to 47 in 2020. Once you have fentanyl, it make its way into your community, um, your, 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 your deaths are going to jump because the, the drug itself is so dangerous, so potent that with it comes in, inevitable deaths. And the other piece we look at though, is that it's not just the fentanyl. We're, we're up drugs across the board. Methamphetamine deaths are up, cocaine deaths are up, heroin deaths are up. But the other piece that we're seeing is lots of mixed combinations, often fentanyl mixed with heroin, mixed with methamphetamine, which tells you one, people are either using fentanyl in combination or fentanyl is actually a contaminant or included drug in, in your drug supply. And that's 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 been and will continue to be a recipe for disaster across this country. And these accidental drug deaths, you've said that these are one of the biggest stories to come out of the 2020 report, but that it seems like it may have fallen by the wayside in terms of public attention. How important is public attention and how important is it to you to bring that attention to these issues? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, one of my my big passions and goals at this office is, is suicide prevention, mental health. Um and I think all of our collective, uh, as we went through the pandemic, our sort of collective focus was on mental health, mental wellness. We knew what everybody was was going through. We knew what we were going through. And I think that's one of the great things that's come out of this the, the pandemic itself was this kind of collective acceptance of 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 our our, our general need to focus on that and to to put effort in as personally as well as communities. But I think why we were kind of all watching that suicide, the suicide numbers and, and thinking at the front of our mind, that's what we needed to worry about. Substance abuse kind of snuck in the back door and we don't see massive increases, at least in this community in our, in our completed suicides. Um, and we can certainly talk more about that and why and what the future looks like. But while we were, while we were worried about that, um, our drug deaths just massively exploded. And when we think about the pandemic, you know, what do humans do? 
they try to, to compensate. They try to cope. And some of us have really, really healthy ways of doing that. But unfortunately, as humans are humans, many of us have very unhealthy ways of doing that. And I think that's really what, in part, what this dramatic rise in substance abuse is at least part uh, partly due to. Now, there are other things, right? The, the lack of access um, during shutdowns and lockdowns to uh, medical care, to addiction centers, to counseling, and some of our safety nets sort of collapsed uh, for a period of time. So there's lots that went into it. But but I think unhealthy coping is is a big part of, of where we are right now coming out on the other side of the pandemic. So what I hear you saying is that these accidental drug deaths and these overdoses in many ways relate back to both the pandemic and mental health. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, none of this is none of this is new, right? We had we had these problems long before anybody ever heard of COVID nineteen, but when you have this sort of global stress, emotional, economic, um, interpersonal, uh, you're going to there's going to be the cracks that are already there are going to widen. And when you have people who are already struggling, already on the edge, already having they don't have the tools in their toolbox to deal with life's normal stresses in a healthy um, way, when you add this additional just once in a generation, once in a hundred years, really stress. It's not a surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise that we've got folks who, who did not do well, um, who did not uh, navigate the pandemic in ways that helped them grow and be resilient and come out um, healthy and, and, and stronger on the other side. It's, it's, it's quite the contrary in some cases. There are a lot of exacerbating factors and just the isolation and the stress itself was a lot. You focused on suicide prevention for many years. El Paso County has had major challenges with suicide. You mentioned that last year you actually saw a slight decrease in the rate of suicide um, over previous years. But teen suicides went up. What can you say about that? Yeah, in, in, in the Rocky Mountain region, Colorado, um, it, it, we, we have had our challenges with suicide. That's not a secret and that's not new. Um, El Paso County in particular, we had a rash of about three years of, of, of dramatic increases in our teen suicides, a, a, a doubling to a tripling from about 2015 to 2017. Lots of resources went in locally, um, you know, task force of suicide prevention. The community really came together, really every youth facing organization, agency or group kind of came to the table and said, what are we going to do about it? And we were able to, to, to cut those suicides in about a half um, fairly quickly. So we saw some great success in, in those efforts. Um, they were paying off. And then of course the pandemic comes and, and everything kind of kind of unraveled for, for many of us. And, and some of those support systems were no longer in place. And we saw our teen suicide numbers jump up to those, those same levels during our, our difficult years. You know, the, the, the upside is that we've got those systems in place already. We've been down this road before. We, we have our own community strength and resiliency from that. And thus far this year, we've, we've only had two, which you know, two is too, too many, but significant improvement over, over last year. So we're hoping that some of those efforts, um, that collective effort, um, not only from adults, but our youth themselves will help us kind of weather this, this period. Um, particularly with our youth. Now, when we talk about adults, it's a little bit different story. I think most of us, uh, most, most adults are pretty good at, at, at making it through the acute crisis. Those sort of um, survival instincts kick in. But then as we start to come out of it, you know, those of us who, who didn't cope in the, the, the healthiest ways, those of us who are now under economic stress, who have lost loved ones to this, now we kind of have to deal with the long-term effects of the pandemic. And so just because 
we did not see dramatic increases during 2020 in suicides. I don't think we need to look at that as necessarily a victory. This this is going to be a long road. Um, and keep in mind that the year before 2019 was one of the worst years, if not the worst year we've had in El Paso County. So we're just not worse than really bad. Um, but uh, once again, the investment that we put in time and energy, I think, helped us during that period that should help us um, as we as we start to come out of this and, and focusing on not only, you know, economic growth, but, you know, psychological and, and mental and emotional well-being and growth as well. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. We're talking with Dr. Leon Kelly. He runs the biggest medical examiner's office in the state. He's the El Paso County coroner, and he also does autopsies for nearly two dozen counties in southern Colorado. He recently released a report on deaths in 2020. Of course, we can't talk about deaths in 2020 without talking about COVID-19 deaths. Do those fall under your purview? They do. Um... Colorado State statute says that any death that constitutes a public health threat, which obviously, you know, in the last hundred years, nothing's constituted a public health threat quite like COVID-19. So, yes, they do. The, the truth, though, is that the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of these deaths don't occur in the home. They're not necessarily even sudden or unexpected. These were folks that grew quite ill, went to the hospital um, or were already in a long term care facility and were under the care of physicians at the time of, of their death. So while our office is notified of each of, of, of the COVID-related deaths, um, almost almost none of these folks require autopsies or any sort of you know, forensic investigation. The, the, the exception to that, though, is people who do die at home, um, who don't seek medical care from, for one reason or another. Um, and that's an area that we were you know, directly involved in. Um, throughout the pandemic and obviously continue to. The, the circumstances and situations have changed and it's been reflective of what's happened in the greater community about who's dying and, and how they're dying. But um, we know now as we've, as we've gone through this that you know, we have our COVID directly related COVID deaths, but across the board, deaths are up from all various types of, of categories. So the impact of the pandemic um, reached far beyond just the virus itself, but to really every aspect of, of our society. And you told us earlier that much of the role of a coroner is to really be engaged in public health. And El Paso County is lagging behind much of the state on vaccinations. You've seen the results of the pandemic in your autopsies, both with folks who have died of COVID in some situations, and from people who have died of related stressors. How do you counsel the general public on vaccines? Yeah, I, I was, I was, I've been involved with public health for a long time, um, largely through our, our, our efforts to um, curb our teen suicide issues. So when COVID came along, my office, the coroner's office and our local public health department had worked hand in hand for many years. And so it was a, a natural, um, a natural duo to continue that work. And so I, I, uh, I became the deputy medical director at public health for much of the pandemic. And, and many, much of my role was that frontward facing um, the education of the community, right? Um, when the coroner shows up, people tend to listen maybe a little bit more than a, than a, than a public health official. And, and I've lived it, right? I I've seen it. I I've talked to families. I've done the autopsies myself. Um, this is not something that we, we, you play around with. We have the ultimate solution to this problem. It, this thing is over as soon as we choose to choose to get your vaccine. And so you give people that that hope and that confidence. You, you, I know what the alternative is, and it's 
it's not, it's not what you want to put on yourself or your family. Um, and so let's, let's be done with it. And, and we have the ultimate solution to do that. So, um, the, the day I got my vaccine was, was one of the happiest of, of, of my life. It was, it was a V day moment for me because I knew the, the ramifications just personally and professionally for what my family. And I think that's how we all need to approach it. We, we, we can win this thing. It's over as soon as you get that, that vaccine. You know, I do want to make sure that we talk about another big category of deaths that uh, you looked at this year. They were up uh, deaths by homicides. They were up by last. They were up last year, and one type of homicide really stood out to you. And again, it goes back to those pandemic stressors. Uh, which type of homicide was that? That was domestic violence or family violence homicides. Um, I think that when 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 the average citizen thinks about you know, homicides or murders, they think of, you know, drug crimes and, and things like that. But the reality is, is that's not what we see at a coroner or medical examiner. The, the vast majority of our deaths are going to be, you know, young people, um, domestic violence or, or altercations, simple arguments, sometimes between strangers, sometimes between friends that escalate rapidly. And, and when I, when you look at that, you know, one of the roles is, to, to go beyond, you know, whose fault is it? Let's prosecute that person. And that's all appropriate. But if you want to prevent these types of things, you got to look at the root problem. And in, in many cases, in most cases of these, the root problem is just the the inability for particularly young people, particularly young males, young and, and, and younger adult males to have the tools to, to navigate what most of us, many of us see as relatively normal stresses in life. Um, simple arguments, you know, road rage incidents, um, arguments with partners that escalate uh, to violence, to, to lethal violence, because they do not have the tools um, for numerous reasons to to deal with those stresses in a positive way, to deal with them in a productive way. You know, courthouses across this country are full of young men um, who are facing charges and, and trials for 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 horrible tragic mistakes they've made because they they did they made incredibly poor decisions at at moments where there were many many other options and I think that's where the focus um, in many ways needs to be giving young people the tools to deal with that to deal with those stresses um, in a positive way. And do you see those deaths by homicide that last year is related to or compounded by COVID and um, the other stressors that went along with it the economy loss of jobs. I, I think so. I mean, I, I think that you know, when we look at our suicides, um, the number one driving factor, uh, particularly in our youth suicides, is is family discord, unhealthy families, right? So if you're in a family in a home that where the, the people that are raising you don't have the tools to navigate life successfully and healthily, it's it's hard to imagine that you're going to get those those same tools. And then when you throw something like a pandemic and the economic stress and, and trying to be at home and homeschool and, and so many young people who, who school was their support system, right? It was their, their link to uh, positive, healthy, supportive adults. Um, and and you, you combine all that, that kind of perfect storm, it should surprise no one that, that we are seeing the things that we're seeing both in our substance use, um, our use suicide, and then, and then even in our our family and domestic violence. When you were talking about teen suicide earlier, you mentioned that El Paso County has specific community strengths and supports that can really help. And I wonder how those relates to the other types of deaths that we're talking about as well. Homicides, you mentioned that young men especially need the tools to cope with those stresses. Tell me more about community strengths and how that relates to solutions. 
Absolutely. And I think that's when we, when we look at where we're going after the pandemic, the pandemic, yeah, it sucked. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. But it's also an incredible opportunity to build that and not only individual resilience and, and grit and strength, but community, right? We saw the the ugly parts. We saw where the cracks were. We saw where we needed to strengthen um, and, and bolster our efforts, right? It, it highlighted in stark fashion the people that were most vulnerable. But that gives us an incredible opportunity as a community um, to to build those areas, right? And, and in our, our teen suicide prevention, bringing those folks together and having those public, I mean, 10 years ago, nobody, not one elected official would be talking, telling a personal story about how they faced suicide or a relative faced suicide or, or substance abuse. And now this is a, this is a conservative community and, and many of, including myself, many of our elected officials are openly discussing that and, and bringing that to the front. Uh, of of our collective discussion and and putting real money behind it and real effort behind it, and I think this is this is the time as we grow out of this where we say okay well, what are our priorities and and clearly I think across the board um, mental health and mental wellness for our young people for our adults that is the that is the key that's that's the that's the key to much of what ails us as a society and I think we are we are having those conversations in a meaningful way for certainly for the first time in my career. Every person who dies has a story. And like you said, you're part of telling those stories every day in some personal ways. You're talking with family members after autopsies. In just about the 45 seconds we have left, how do you deal with the weight of your job on a personal level? Uh, you know, that's a, that's a tough question. <laughs> um, and I don't, I don't necessarily have all the answers. I would say I'm, I'm figuring that out along the way, too. But there's two ways. One, we see the worst of the worst every day here. Um, and so you are the front lines. You're the first on the first conversation with a family has after the worst imaginable tragedy, but I provide answers. And in those answers becomes that sort of first step towards healing and that first step towards moving on in their life and hopefully using this bad experience to either make themselves better or, or those around them's lives better. And then when you take another couple steps back, you know, that, you know, the information that we gain in these autopsies and, and the way we present that and communicate that to the broader community is that first step, not only towards the individual healing, but towards the community progressing in a way. The reason why we have seatbelts and airbags and all these other things that make our lives better is because somebody had the, the courage to, to do the autopsy, right? And to communicate that here's what went wrong. And then people much smarter than me can take that information and say, okay, let's make sure that never happens again. Or or we do everything we can to, to make the world safer for everybody else. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Kelly. You're very, very welcome. Thank you for having me on. Dr. Leon Kelly is a forensic pathologist and the chief medical examiner and elected coroner for El Paso County, the largest medical examiner's office in the state. In Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Pastor Paula Stone Williams is transgender and learned about the patriarchy once she transitioned. There is no way a well-educated white male can understand how much the culture is tilted in his favor. Her book, As a Woman, is our pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Read it and join us June 30th for a virtual chat. Free tickets at CPR.org slash Turn the Page. Supported by Wanabo Love Keller Mendenhall Smith Wealth Management Group of Wells Fargo Advisors.
Children's mental health is in such dire straits in Colorado that doctors have declared a state of emergency. Those grim words came late last month from the Children's Hospital Colorado. Experts say they're seeing a big jump in the number of kids who need support. Some teachers are helping kids put their emotions into words with a curriculum called the Imagine Project. CPR's Andrea Dukakis went to watch and listen, and she's here with us now. Andrea, hi. Hi. We've been following this issue of kids struggling with mental health before and during the pandemic and ways to help them. This particular approach is about kids writing their feelings. How does it work? The idea is children experience a lot more trauma than we think, and they don't always understand it or have the words to talk about it. So in classes that have adopted this curriculum, students are asked to write a personal story using the word imagine. The best way to understand it is to hear from a kid. Hi, my name is Dominic, and I live in Greenwood Village, Colorado, and I'm 11. Dominic Mioli just finished up fifth grade at Bellevue Elementary in Greenwood Village. His teacher, Todd Daubert, heard about the Imagine Project from a teacher at a different school. And he says at the beginning of the school year, he tried it out and he thought it would help his kids in part deal with the stress and upheaval from COVID. Uh, Here is Dominic's essay. Imagine going into fifth grade after ending school online in fourth grade. Imagine starting off the school year required to wear a mask every day. Imagine being scared to get COVID. Imagine getting COVID and being quarantined in your basement. Imagine your family being split up because you and your mom have COVID. Imagine your dad and sister are upstairs and don't have COVID. Imagine feeling depressed and lonely in your basement. Imagine no one teaching you how to do online school. Imagine 14 days are over and you go back to school. Imagine many people distancing from you when you came back to school. Imagine people seeing you and backing away because they think you still have COVID. Imagine people finally knowing you don't have COVID and hanging out with you again. Imagine people in your family getting the vaccine. Imagine finally being able to see your grandparents after 10 months. Imagine hope. I can really, I can see his story. What is the idea behind using that word imagine? I think the beauty of it is that it's a simple way to help these kids get their stories out. And they can, but they're not required to read them aloud in class. This is all the brainchild of a Colorado woman named Diane Maroney. She's a clinical nurse specialist in psychiatric and mental health nursing. And about 10 years ago, she traveled around the country asking people to tell their stories using that word imagine. And she put those stories into a book. Then she tried it with children, and since then, tens of thousands of kids around the country and the world have written these imagined stories. What are some other things kids wrote about in Mr. Daubert's class this year besides COVID? I met another fifth grader in his class who wrote about the struggle she had growing up, this particular struggle. My name is Chloe. Should I say my last name? Sure. Cartwright, and I live in Greenwood Village. And here's the first part of Chloe's story. Imagine you're a three-year-old and you're so shy you couldn't speak out in public. Imagine you could only speak out around family members. Imagine your shyness reaches a limit where you need to learn ASL, American Sign Language. 
Imagine working tirelessly as a three-year-old toddler trying to memorize every sign as your tiny hands cramping and aching trying to learn sign language. Chloe goes on to write about how her parents hired a speech therapist to help her to one day be able to speak in public, and then more recently how she learned about the Black Lives Matter movement and got involved. Imagine you make posters and put them out in the hall. Imagine you finally get your voice out that you've awaited for so long. Imagine that I get to share my voice out more many years to come. What did Chloe tell you about writing down her story? She says it helped her get her emotions out and made her feel really good to read it to her class. Since a lot of people don't know about it, and um, I, I guess my story just proves that shy people can become powerful people. Dominic, who wrote about how his classmates didn't want to get near him because of COVID, says he doesn't usually like to talk about his feelings. I just, like, hold it inside of me because it's just, like, easier not to tell anyone than to, like, tell people. But he had a similar reaction to Chloe's. He said writing about this particular experience, that loneliness of being trapped in his basement and separated from the outside world, just made him feel better. Andrea, you mentioned the kids' teacher, Todd Daubert. What did he notice about the program and its effect on kids? Mr. Daubert has taught at Bellevue for 30 years, and he said he's used a lot of different social-emotional programs with students, ones that allow children to role-play and practice coping with problems. But he says this particular approach is so simple and straightforward. On the very first day of the school year, Daubert had the class write about back in March of 2020 when schools suddenly shut down because of COVID. He started by reading his own story about having to say goodbye to his kids and not ever really getting to say goodbye. And they just walked out the door. I knew that was going to be their last day, I thought, but because nobody really made that call, they just walked away. And nobody had any closure or anything like that. And I knew every one of those students that I was working with had that experience from a child's perspective. And even though we were online and everything, it wasn't the same. As CPR has reported, this year has also been enormously difficult for teachers and tough on their emotional health, too. Mr. Daubert says he and the class continued to write Imagine essays throughout the course of the school year on a bunch of different topics as a kind of therapy. So it sounds like these stories benefit teachers as well. No question. And Mr. Daubert says he thinks it helps the kids with their hard skills, too. I want to create a climate where kids feel safe. They want to connect with me, with each other, so they can learn. Without that, learning doesn't even happen. I mean, you know, we can talk about academics all day long, but if a child is feeling unsafe or scared or nervous or any of those feelings along the way and there's no way to process that, learning won't happen. I wonder if there's any concern that revealing this stuff could make trauma worse for kids without follow-up counseling or that some children might regret that they've shared a story or that they get teased by other kids. Yeah, 
Teachers like Mr. Daubert work with school counselors and refer kids to counseling if a child is struggling with something they can't handle. Mr. Daubert says they also have four agreements around these Imagine essays, that students understand that they will be uncomfortable sometimes, that they have to stay engaged, speak their truth, and know they may not find closure on an issue. And while the stories we heard earlier have positive endings, not all of them do. As you watch kids kind of go into very, very dark places with their stories, some of them just stop their stories right there. You know, I had a student writing about a divorce and being in a split family and having to juggle two expectations and homework and not showing up organized and all the stuff that goes with it. And then I simply said to him, I said, I said, now imagine how you like this to be in your future. Imagine what the future can be like. You know, I think it is important that we note that while the pandemic has exacerbated stress for kids and adults, mental problems have been on the rise for a while now. Right. This is not new. Well before anyone had heard of COVID-19, kids have been feeling extra academic pressure at school. They also deal with the social pressure that comes from social media. And they report a lot of existential angst, fears about things like school shootings, climate change, future debt. Diane Maroney, the woman who developed the program for kids back in 2013, remembers early on when she first asked a teacher friend to try having students write these imagined stories. She said the stories were really eye-opening. They talked about being bullied. They talked about, you know, loss, health issues, parents not being there, over-parenting. But was really scary is that three kids talked about maybe not wanting to be on this planet. And so I thought, wow, this is a window in the psyche. So I kept going and worked with any school. Anybody would have me from homeless kids to affluent kids. Maroney offers the curriculum free online and says her goal this year that she admits is a bit lofty is to reach a million kids. A lot of stories. Yeah. You spoke earlier with Children's Hospital Colorado that they recently or you said earlier that they declared the state is experiencing a youth mental health crisis. What do they mean? When they announced this, they spoke about emergency room visits being way up for kids having mental health crises. The bulk of those admissions had been for kids who have thoughts of suicide or have attempted suicide. Doctors have called on the governor to ensure that there are more beds for kids who need them. Right now, there aren't nearly enough. And to provide more money to help these kids. Colorado ranks near the bottom of states for funding children's mental health. And schools also need to be looking for approaches to help kids express their feelings and know they're not alone to possibly head off some of these major crises. Bellevue Elementary says it plans to introduce the program for all grades next school year. Teachers will do the curriculum as well. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks. CPR's Andrea Dukakis talking about the Imagine Project, where children are encouraged to write personal stories and read them to classmates.
The chance to weigh in on plans to designate Camp Amachi a National Historic Site will soon be over. The National Park Service will take public comment period until the end of the month. Amachi was an internment camp in southeast Colorado that housed Japanese Americans during World War II. People like Carlene, Tanagoshi, Tinker, and her family. She was there when she was just a toddler, but she's been returning to help excavate and preserve what's left. Bonnie Clark is an archaeologist and directs the University of Denver's Amachi Research Project. I spoke with them last month. Carlene, let's start with some of your story. You're 81 years old now, so you were very young during World War II, just a toddler. What's your most distinct memory of being at Amachi? Oh, golly, there are so many, but one really stands out. Uh, given your climate of being very dry, there were constant uh, sandstorms. And when my dad would take me to dinner, where we had to stand in line for the mess hall, he would hoist me up on his shoulders, wrap a scarf around my face so I wouldn't get blinded by the sand. And there we were three times a day lining up for our food. Wow. And that must have been such a change from California where you had been growing up. You also remember taking a bath, right? Oh, yeah. That, too, is really memorable, particularly since we found those on one of the Amachi field schools recently. Customarily, my mom, my two uh, maternal aunts, and I would march off to uh, our bathtub. And in Japanese, it's called ofuro. And typically they're built on top of a platform. They're typically enclosed by uh, like a a house, maybe like a gazebo. And uh, the tin, the water is held in a tin, looks like a trough for horses. It's on top of a coal source of heat. There are cinder blocks that are being burned underneath. Well, in our case, ours was not enclosed. I would remember walking up to the platform with my mom and my aunts. And as is also the custom, you wash before with soap and water, then you rinse and then you get into the tub. And I can still feel, isn't that funny? I can still feel the sensation of the warm water. And as I looked up as a little kid, I'm looking at the stars on a black sky What an amazing memory. And I still remember that quite vividly. Wow, that is so vivid. When your family was finally released from the camp, you moved back to California. How much did your parents talk with you about that time at Amachi? You know, I think for a lot of people, a lot of people of my age, we ask each other, did your parents ever really talk about this? And in my case, they did not. Uh, I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because of shame, embarrassment, or it may also have been because, you know, you accept what you were, uh, that you were in camp and life goes on, life goes forward. But in any case, uh, for me, I did not have that experience of people talking to me at home. Many Japanese Americans who were interned lost virtually everything, or they had to sell off their businesses, homes, possessions at very low prices. Was that the case for your family? Well, um, in my case, we were living in Los Angeles. My parents didn't own um, any property like so many farmers, for example. So in our case, we did not lose very much. Uh, So 
for us, it was not as tragic as it was for lots of people. Some of the volunteers in our um, Amachi Field School, their parents lost their farms. They had nothing to come back to. So for them, they had a great loss. Bonnie, let's bring you in here. You've been playing a key role in uncovering much of the history at Amachi. Can you describe what the place looks like now? Well, you know, for anybody in uh, Colorado who has been out to the high plains, you know, once you get past the front range and you head east, you know, imagine those those that kind of, you know, sort of rolling sandy hills with um, sagebrush and yucca. And that's really what it looks like, except that at Amachi, especially as you get closer, you start to see rows and rows of trees. And those trees were all planted by um, the incarceries at Amachi. You also, as you come up, um, you're going to, typically you're going to come through the Arkansas Valley. So you'll be along the train tracks. And those are the train tracks that, that brought people to Amachi. And then you go through the fields that helped to support the people in the camp. They were part of the project. And so you've got this historic irrigation line with big cottonwood trees along it. And then as you hit up at Amachi, that's where you see, uh, first off, the roads are still there. They're crushed limestone. So they kind of stand out, these white roads. And then as you move further up the hill and into the camp is when you start to see little concrete pads on either side. And those are the foundations for the buildings that were there. And for the most part, those are still present. And you start to notice the trees and um, there are now a few buildings that have been reconstructed as well as a couple of the important key features, one of the guard towers, as well as the water tower. And if you do get out and wander around, you might find um, a chunk of a tin can or uh, the top of a a soda bottle um, cap. Uh, We have, you know, lots of little things that are remnants of, you know, the thousands of people who live there. Carlene, you've done some excavating with Bonnie over the last 10 years, and you've made a lot of discoveries. You mentioned the bathtub. You also saw the barracks where your family lived. Now bipartisan members of Colorado's delegation are pushing in Congress to have Amachi named as a National Historic Site. Carlene, what would that mean for you? Well, I'll tell you, it's uh, going to camp was the beginning of my life, beginning of my personal history, and seeing it become a national park unit would sort of bring sort of it full circle to a very nice um, culmination. It gives a sort of a nice uh, package uh, to my personal history, and it would be something that would be shared for generations to see what we as a, a group of people were wrongfully sent away. But in spite of that, we made the best of it. We survived. And I think we gave back to the country in spite of how we were treated. So I think I think it would be wonderful. And for that reason, among others, of course, it's important that uh, Amachi be recognized as a national park. And I hope with the uh, response that we're getting now that it looks like it may actually become a reality. And Bonnie, in about the minute we have left, what would it mean to you and for this place, for 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 it to be designated a National Historic Site? The thing about a Park Service site is that it is 
protected in perpetuity. That's the way that the parks service is. And, and I think that's so important for a place like Amachi and particularly because it does have such good physical integrity. And so Amachi not only tells its own story, but it helps to tell the story of the other of the 10 camps that don't have that sort of legibility that you can't go and, and, and experience the cultural, that cultural landscape. And I also think that Amachi really tells the story of the Asian American experience in the American heartland. And I think that's such an important experience right now for us to be grappling with and understanding that those histories, the history of agriculture and sugar beet farming and growing onions in Colorado is an Asian American story. Bonnie Clark, director of DU's Amachi Research Project, and Carlene Tanagoshi-Tinker, who was incarcerated at Camp Amachi with her family during World War II. The National Park Service is accepting public comment for the next three weeks about designating Amachi a national historic site. We'll put a link at CPR.org. Just outside Grand Junction is a hidden red rock world. Colorado National Monument was founded 110 years ago. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg shares how it happened. Colorado National Monument's first caretaker has been described as a visionary, a proud patriot, also an oddball and a hermit. John Otto is a, um, a, 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 an interesting character. Arlene Jackson is the monument's chief of interpretation and says Otto's legacy touches so many parts of the park. I think of John Otto as kind of being the, the foundation or the bedrock. You don't notice the fact that you're walking on the, the ground, but yet you can't be here without it. She's standing on Monument Canyon Trail, one of many trails Otto built. It takes you places you cannot even see simply driving past. Like there's this little canyon opening and you, you have no idea. It's like a surprise. You know, like you open a birthday present and oh my gosh, it's way bigger and way more than you, than you could have dreamed of. With sun-soaked stone walls hundreds of feet high and boulders bigger than pickups. In the past 110 years, nearby Grand Junction has changed a lot. But the monument has not because of Otto. He first saw this place in the early 1900s. And he fell in love with the canyons here. He decided they needed federal protection and national recognition. He'd already been an activist for mine safety, so he knew how to get attention. Jackson says he started writing. He writes letters to the local politicians. He writes letters to the state politicians. He writes letters to the president of the United States. He befriended reporters and photographers and gave tours. He was the land's biggest cheerleader and a complicated ambassador. Some people thought that his awkward mannerisms and his overriding passion for this place and his ability to truly annoy people um, so that they would pay attention to him, you know, was not as... (laughs) Um, endearing as it is in the future, looking back. But Jackson is grateful for him. Some combination of Otto's enthusiasm, relentless lobbying, and support from the local paper worked. And William Howard Taft signed off on the legislation creating Colorado National Monument in May of 1911. Otto was appointed its first caretaker at a salary of $1 a month. Even for that time, that's not a lot. 
about 30 bucks in today's money. But Jackson says Otto was happy, spending his days building trails and his nights sleeping in a tent. He was in his element. He was, you know, passionate about the work that he was doing. And um, he probably was pretty tickled with himself. He even got married. Through letters, he wooed this artist he'd met, and they found they shared many progressive beliefs. For a wedding gift, Otto gave her a pack mule named Foxy. Yeah, the marriage lasted like less than three weeks. It seems that Otto's biggest relationship was with the monument, where he lived for more than two decades. But even that was fraught. He always wanted more. More land for the park, more money for projects, more people to come. Jackson says that sometime in the 1920s, Otto became fed up with the federal government. And feels like they're, you know, deliberately putting obstacles in his way. So he left. Otto moved to remote northern California, gold country, living alone in an abandoned post office. He pretty much disassociated himself with Colorado National Monument. That seems so hard. Um, It does... But I have a feeling that that was part of his personality. It was an all or nothing. And when all became too much for him, um, then it was nothing. When John Otto died at age 81, he was too poor for a proper grave. Fifty years later, supporters of the park he helped build bought him a big headstone in California. It's the shape of Colorado National Monument's tallest stone pillar. Otto used to climb that all 450 feet of it, and plant an American flag over the stunning, arid land he loved so fiercely. The flag still flies there every Independence Day, a tradition now carried on by volunteers. At Colorado National Monument, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner, Anthony Cotton, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. 